the optimal life. So, Jack, this is going to be an interesting one because I haven't had anybody uh, in your world, in your uh, stratosphere on the podcast. When I say that, um, I haven't had anybody that considers themselves an anti-feminist um, or somebody of those of that sort. So, I got to uh, correct I, I you there, my Nate. First, my, my first I got to correct you. Yeah, I'm not an anti-feminist. Okay, what are you? counter-feminist. A counter Okay, so what's the difference? Let's start there. Okay, so an anti-feminist says no. When feminists talk about their issues, which how sexism affects women and girls, uh, a counter, an anti-feminist says, ah, oh, a bunch of baloney. Women are on a pedestal. They got it easy. A counter-feminist, on the other hand, says, yeah, okay, we've heard that for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Yes, I'll say yes, and, and it's the end that's the important part of the counter-feminist. Because feminism seems to think that sexism only affects women and girls. And I like to point out that the most sexist idea of all is that only one sex, namely men, is ever sexist, and women are never sexist. And the other part of that is the idea that only women are hurt by sexism and men are never hurt by sexism. I think that's that's very wrong. And I think it's so wrong that I make the bold statement that feminism is only 50% correct. And if you don't understand that, you're 100% wrong. Interesting. So you believe that there are uh, these feminisms, uh, these these uh, you believe that both sexes do f- uh, attract some form of discrimination f- equally across the board. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yes, I would say equally across the board. Um, it, it's you know it's hard. How how are you going to measure these things? They're you know they're very qualitative. It's hard to hard to come up with metrics for them, and to to weigh them mathematically. Um, but yes, as a general principle, equal across the board. I mean, I think I would say that over the course of, you know, the next uh, 10,000 years, probably men and women will uh, have equal uh, difficulties with with sexism if, you know, we, we get to work on making sure that men aren't the only ones remaining to have difficulties with sexism. So I'm wondering how this all came about for somebody like yourself. Uh, you know, to come on and be a voice against the feminism voice. The feminism movement has been at rampant highs, as you've seen society continuing to uh, ramp up with the Me Too movement several years ago. And it's almost like being a man, you almost became, you were ashamed to be a man, right? Like the, the way that the, the society was going, it was almost like, God forbid, a man even tapped a woman on her shoulder. Uh, it was getting that rampant. But but I'm curious, when did this start for you, Jack? And why why did you make this such a, an important mission of yours? Well, because a lot of social problems are involved in sexism and gender discrimination against men and boys. That's That's what it is for me right now. That's why I call myself the counter-feminist social worker. I went back to school. I left my my pretty cushy job as an IT guy in a big nonprofit organization in DC in 2005 to go back to school for three years cost me a lot of money in a lot of ways I wasn't making any money plus I was paying tuition to get an MSW a master's in social work because it was very clear to me starting with my well, we could go back to when I was a kid, but professionally, or not really professionally because I didn't make any money at it, but as a, as a serious avocation, I started with a radio show in 1983 called uh, In a Man's Shoes. Now, I can tell you how, how I got the idea to do that. If you want, I could go back farther to when I was a kid uh, to things that uh, just sort of stuck in my craw and didn't seem right, although I wasn't able to articulate them because I was a kid and didn't know anything. What, what about. were some of those things? Yeah, give us an example or two. Well, okay, you want to go back to the earliest thing I remember? Absolutely. Okay, the earliest thing I remember, and I only remembered this after I became aware of the fact that there is such a thing as gender discrimination against boys and men, 
is the corollary of what we know is bad for girls to hear. If, you, if there's a little girl around you who is really good at math, we know these days that you don't say to the little girl, gee, you're really good at math, dot, 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 for a girl. And if she's really good at sports, we know that it's not good to say to her, gee, you're really good at sports, dot, 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 for a girl. Because that's a subtle message that, you know, you're really never going to be that good. You're really kind of sort of an oddball being good at math. You're kind of an oddball being good at sports because everybody knows that's for men and boys, which is craziness. Um, so we've spent 30, 40, 50, 60 years getting that in our heads that that's a way of limiting girls' happiness and fulfillment and success and value to our communities. All right, that's the setup. What I used to hear as a little boy, and I don't think I was the only one, um, what I used to hear was, as a little boy was, gee, Jack, you're really good with babies, dot, 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 for a boy. Now you think about... All of, the, all of the things that are connected to what we know we shouldn't say to little girls about their abilities in sports and math and science and technology. Think of all of the harms that does our society to steer girls wrong in that way. And then do the same for all of the harms it does to our society to start little boys off with thinking that you know, being a nurturing, kind, caring, gentle person who likes babies really isn't for, for males. It's just, it's crazy, it's wrong, it's horrible, it's, it's stupid, and it's not good social policy. How old were you and we when have, that occurred? I was probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know. I know I had my first niece when I, I think I was 16 when she was born, and God, I just loved her. She was so much fun. Um. But you were but, concerned you know, when you were 16 and you had your first niece, did those feelings come back like, hey, I'm being a great caregiver or I'm taking care of her well, but dot, 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 for a boy? Were those thoughts in your head? I think that it's at 16, at the age of 16, as a young man, you're going through a lot of changes and trying to figure out who you are and what you're good for and you know, what your role in life is going to be and how you contribute to your, you know, your family, your community, your society. Uh, you know, there's lots of insecurities about being a young, being a boy at the age of 16, right? So um, I think it probably uh, crossed my mind at the age of 16 that, geez, I'm a little, I'm a little strange here. I'm a little odd because my buddies weren't, you know, going out of their way to be super nurturing. Um, now, is that because they just didn't have it in them? Or is it because they just sort of got the message uh, that you leave that to women and girls? What was your childhood like? Let's stick to the childhood a little bit. Uh, your relationship with your mother in particular. Well, my mother was great. Um, she is probably the person I would attribute most to imparting to me the security and the self-confidence to know, I don't care what people think. She, she called me an eager beaver, and I, I just, my, my brothers and sisters accused me of being her favorite. We, we were seven kids, and they sort of teased me, but I think behind the teasing, they, they sort of mean it, that I was my mother's favorite. Mm -hmm. Now, probably, uh, you know, but also an important question is, what was my father like? Um, and this is another thing that I remember from being a kid. I remember... Well, my father was a family doctor, an old-time family doctor. He was, I grew up, I was born in 1951. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And my father was a 1950s, 1960s father. He got up in the morning and he went away and he came home tired and grumpy. Worked his ass off as a family doctor. Didn't charge his clients a lot of money because he worked in a pretty blue collar section of Baltimore. Um, but he had seven kids and he put us all through college. Uh, and I don't think I ever really said, you know, thanks, Dad. Um, but he came home tired and grumpy. He eventually became an alcoholic. Uh, he eventually got, uh, you know, on the wagon and, and uh, straightened that up for the most part. Um, but I remember as a child 
seeing my father in his life and then seeing the life of all of my friends' fathers in the neighborhood, getting up in the morning, going away, getting on a, a bus or a train or driving way far away to some office somewhere, away from their kids, that just seemed like the most, the, the saddest thing I could think of having for the rest of my life, that that was going to be my, uh, my role in life. Um, and the idea later on of hearing from feminist ideology that that was privilege, that that was male privilege, just said to me, no, that is not a privilege to me. I do not want that. That's not what I want. I'd like some that of that. Huh? Yeah. Do you believe that that's why in your adult life, is that one of the reasons you stayed away from ever having your own children? Yes, I, I do. I think that there's a lot of reasons why why I stayed away from having kids. Uh, one of which was that when I was in my prime dating age, uh, there was this woman that I, you know, was really smitten by. Um, but she said to me, you're the male. You're the one who's supposed to make the money. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay. So you want me to be the one who gets up in the morning every day and gets on that train and goes to some office somewhere to bring home money, but not know my kids. No, thank you. Not for me. Uh, we Did broke you know up right when she said that? Did you know right the moment she said that, was it over between the two of you? It, I don't think it was absolutely over. Uh, in your I, emotional I, I, state, did you kind of feel like, uh-oh, this is, this is not going to work? Yeah. I, I, well, I certainly thought, that's pretty typical. Uh, I don't, I, th I mean, I, I was very smitten by her, so I wasn't ready to just say goodbye completely, but I knew this, this could be a problem. But you felt I, that I that do, was, you felt that that was a, a sexist attack toward you. Maybe wasn't an attack. attack. Maybe an attack is the wrong word, but a sexist yeah. Uh, assumption, assertion a sexist, you. a sexist assumption. Right, a sexist assumption. You for didn't me. like that assumption. No, I didn't like it at all. I and she didn't even say you're the man. She said you're the male. <laughs> you know, like it's just like biologically in me that I need to or or should should want to. Uh, you know, go and. How old were you when that happened, Jack? Oh, that was, let's see, in 19, probably about 82, 83. Uh, so so I would have been 21. in my early 30s, in my early oh, 30s. Yeah, yeah, early 30s, yeah, 30, 31. Yep. Yeah. And um, and, and did you have, a, at that point, once, when that uh, occurred to you, did you kind of already know that you had these strong feelings about these gender roles and differences? and Or, or, was, or was it still too early for you to understand, like, how passionate you were about this? Well, I didn't really become consciously passionate about this until the early 80s. Um, don't know if this was, I don't know where I was with this woman I just mentioned who said it was my job. It was job close. You were close. In that it was close, exactly. Time. Okay. But let me tell you the first conscious inkling I had that I wanted to do something about this problem that I perceived in, in, the, in the culture um, that I was sure didn't affect just me. I played on a co-ed softball team and uh, did that for several years. And it was just a ton of fun. And um, after our games on Tuesday nights, we would go out drinking and dancing. And we had a great time uh, because the women on the team were cool. You know, I, I really like women who, who are, you know, not girly, girly girls and, you know, worry about breaking their fingernails. Um, <clears throat> these were really cool women. And after um, games on two consecutive Tuesdays, I was in the bar where we went after our games on two consecutive Tuesdays with two different women. And both of these consecutive Tuesdays, what happened was that I was sitting at a table with one of my teammates, a female teammate, and they were going on and on and on about their boyfriends. And <clears throat> they were giving me their tales of woe about their boyfriends, and both of them ended their stories, their tales of woe, with some version of, and so he's a real jerk 
don't you think? And both times, all I could do was to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe he's a real jerk, but, you know, based on what you're telling me, maybe the way it looks to him is such and such. And I don't even remember what the details were, what the facts patterns were. But I said, it was perfectly obvious to me that the, the other possibility was something that was affecting him unhappily. And both times, both women said, oh my God, I never thought of that. And that's when it occurred to me that, wow, the female point of view is being pretty well discussed. The male point of view is not being considered at all. And that's when I decided that I was gonna do something about it. Um, my girlfriend at the time was on the softball team, not one of the two women I just mentioned. But uh, I said to her, I think I'm going to start a magazine and call it Every Man. And she said, very important advice. She said, well, look, uh, postage is expensive. Printing is expensive. She didn't know that the internet was coming along and was going to wipe out magazines. <laughs> but she said, look, that's all expensive. Why don't you try a radio show? So what a great idea. And I went to a local public radio station at a university near me and made the pitch and they said that sounds pretty cool and from 1983 to 1989 I did a weekly radio show called In a Man's Shoes we had different names for it at different times I think I started out with the lives of men In a Man's Shoes and Men, Sex and Power but every week I got to talk with somebody who had something interesting to say about what was really going on with men and boys and we looked beyond the idea that we were hearing very much in the culture that, oh, it's just so great being a man. It's nothing but a privilege. And it's a man's world and aren't men lucky. And we talked about the other half of that. You know, there are difficulties with being a man and a boy. And so from 1983 to 1989, I got to talk with really interesting people, you know, some popular culture types, but other scientists. And it just became really clear to me um, that there were a lot of social issues involved in what's going on with men and boys. I should mention that um, I live in Baltimore, which is a very distressed city. Early on in the radio show, I had a flyer come across my, I can't say I had a desk, it, I guess it was in my pigeonhole, my, my mailbox, a flyer came through directed to me, and it was about a conference that was being held at Morgan University, which is an HBCU, a historically black college and university, or you know, a really important part of Baltimore. Um, and what was happening at Morgan was a conference being sponsored by the Baltimore Urban League called Black Men and Endangered Species. Now, this was before black men as an endangered species was, you know, as common a phrase as it is today. But I, I contacted Richard Rowe, the fellow who was putting this conference on at the, for the Baltimore Urban League. And I said, Richard, this sounds great. Um, some of the problems, so, some of the factors that are adversely affecting black men are no doubt about the fact that they're black because racism exists and racism hurts them. However, look, you're doing this conference not on black men and women, but on black men. So there must be a gender component to what you want to talk about. He said, yes, there is. And I had him on my show, and that was the beginning of me having a very strong interest in the social problems that are connected with sexism and discrimination and biases and stereotypes and false expectations and unreasonable demands that we place on our men and boys, especially our men and boys who really do not have the wherewithal to live up to that uh, sort of impossible standard. I, I want to go back to the, uh, the softball season and you being at the restaurant two separate Tuesdays back to back with these ladies. Is it possible that had the roles been reversed and it was a lady with 
two different men, two back-to-back Tuesdays, and the guys were complaining to her about, oh, my girlfriend, my wife, my fiance, whatever she might have been to them. And her saying to those guys, well, let me give you the female perspective. And those guys going, oh, wait a second. I never thought about that. I mean, I I think you, it sounds like you think that it was completely the other side, but is there potential just innately because of who we are, because of the male, female, the, the brains are different. We have different perspectives, different scenarios. Could that have happened if the roles were reversed? Or could have happened, however, Keep in mind, this was in 19, uh, in the 1980s, early 1980s, when the feminist movement was pretty well underway. And it was not rare to have a person be able to speak about sexism against women. And it was not the situation that uh, men were completely oblivious to the female point of view. Okay, so in the so this was in the early '80s, and um, in the early '80s, it would not have been unusual for uh, um, for men to be very uh, acquainted with the fact that there were uh, false stereotypes and biases that uh, men hold towards women and girls. Uh, but at the restaurant, it was very much the case that I was the only one that I knew uh, who was talking about the fact that there was sexism and discrimination against men and boys. Mm. So you started becoming more passionate about this, obviously, in that time frame. And you take it, you took it with you into your adult life. Like you said, you went back to school in the early 2000s, and you've kind of made this your mission to shed light into the, I see you have courses about being the counter-feminist, and you can walk around with the badge and all these things, which we can get to. I want to talk to you about when you saw the meat, let's go back to the Me Too movement when that was coming out several years ago. Yeah, so when the the Me Too movement, we're having little technical difficulties, but we'll clean it up. Uh, when, when the Me Too movement came out years back, and you had already been doing this work for a long time. I mean, in some fashion, you had been doing this work for I don't know thirty years plus or minus at that point, from the early eighties till till the 2010, 2012, 14. Um, what, what, what did that do to you? I mean, what was, what was your feeling about that when you started seeing the Me Too phenomenon? Well, um, I hate to disappoint you, but it was, yes, Harvey Weinstein is horrible. Jeffrey Epstein is horrible. Uh, I also saw <clears throat> that Garrison Keillor got caught up in this. And I love Garrison Keillor. He's fabulous. He got caught up in it for what I think was a pretty minor offense. Um, what about, was the uh, let me interrupt you. What about what you saw they did to the Supreme Court nominee uh, before he got put into office? I still don't know who to believe in that case. You're talking about Kavanaugh yeah. versus Blasey Ford? I mm-hmm. still don't know who to believe. You don't, okay. No. No, I don't think anybody, well, I think we can know what we want to believe, but I think the evidence is pretty pretty mixed all over the place. See, I didn't see any real firm evidence that there was ever any kind of uh, abuse there. Well, like I said, I don't know what to believe. So you're not always against the females. Nate, I'm not an anti-feminist. I am not living uh, in a cave. I don't have my head in the sand. I'm a, I'm a freaking social worker. Um, I'm concerned about people having happy lives, and I'm concerned about social justice. And of course, yes, there is such a thing as sexism against women and girls. Absolutely, definitely, positively, yes. My concern is that we're only talking about half the problem. When you saw some of the Me Too stuff, do you think that some of it was taken too far, where where it became rampant, where everybody was a Me Too victim. Garrison Keillor is my poster boy for that. That he is, I don't even know what he's doing anymore, but he can't be happy. Um, And I think we lost a great talent because of, I don't know, something that really didn't merit that kind of a death sentence. Um, Who's the senator um, from Minnesota? the one who was on Saturday Night Live, I think he probably got treated pretty roughly too. 
Um, but, you know, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, I, you know, I don't have any kinship with them. They're not the kind of men I like and admire and respect and want to be like and want to defend. Not at all. Not at all. No, of course not. I, of yeah. course not. That, but the Me Too movement expanded way beyond those guys. Those guys were, those guys were finally being exposed for years and years of abuse. Okay, and, so here's 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 what I what I can give you, Nate. I'm not going to go into this very far, because um, it it sort of feels like you're really skeptical about my point of view. Um, no, no, I'm not. I'm actually just okay. trying to pull. I'm I'm trying to pull it out of you. Okay, all right. You, so I, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to go deeply into this, um, because there are many other much clearer uh, topics we can talk about, but. The Me Too movement involves sex. And I will say only that I think we have a lot, a lot, a lot to understand and think about men and sex. That's all I'll say. And, and, and how, how our current sexual mores and customs and what's considered okay and what's not uh, do not um, consider fairly uh, men's participation in sexuality. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but if you want that's to okay. move on. That's okay. Yeah, I do want to move on. If you want to move on from that, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, I do. But why do you want to move on? Because I, like I, these questions? Because I, do, I don't, it, it doesn't it's not an issue that is ready to be talked about. Because this is what your, your your line of work your line of work is not related to the, the the sexuality aspect or the. I mean, we're talking about much greater things here in terms of gender roles and and uh, biases in society. Yeah, that's kind of I'm where talking, you're. Yeah, I'm talking about life and death issues. People shooting each other in the streets, people committing suicide, um, alcoholism, drug abuse. Um, kids growing up uh, from in broken families, uh, helping to establish the the principle that that is pretty well borne out in the science that it's not good to uh, disregard the value of fathers. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, I, I come from a divorced um, household here. I got divorced three years ago. And we've got three daughters. Um, and I know that's one of the lines of work that you talk about, healthy marriages, healthy divorces. So are there roles that a woman should be playing versus the roles a man should be playing once you break up a family and have two separate homes? And if so, what are they? If the man and the woman want there to be, that's fine with me. If the man and the woman don't both want there to be, then we need to work it out. The bias the default, the, the, the way the playing field is tilted is toward the women, the woman being much more likely to um, get some semblance, some balance, some combination of the things that she wants and much less likelihood that the man will be able to achieve the same optimization, and you know, this is about the optimal life, right? The optimization of uh, his life and his relationship with his kids. Yeah, that's one of the things I found going through the process. Is I think we've made progress. Going back to your this whole theme of yours, I feel like we have made progress in terms of the man finally being looked at. Like, hey, the the father figure is pretty important. I know the mother figure has always been looked at as the end all. And of course, it is extremely important, but I do think it's like a, to your point, a 50-50 share here. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think for the benefit of both, for the children especially, it's very, very important that a man is actively involved in their lives. And for so long, the courts never saw it that way. I agree. It, it is not so long ago. You don't remember because you're not old enough. I remember when it was very clear in the culture I won't say absolutely 100% um, 
asserted every time, but it was very clear in the culture. There was a strong strain of belief that when a man and a woman got a divorce and there were kids involved, the best thing that the father could do was to go away. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. That's, that's, that's where we were starting from in the 1950s and 1960s. Here's an important thing that I, I like to mention. Um, Betty Friedan was, um, she, she's pretty much credited with launching the, the modern feminist movement with her book, uh, The Feminine Mystique. Do, do you know that, that? Do you know the name Betty Friedan? Um, was she uh, listed on your website at all? I, yeah, I've, I've got a couple of quotes from her. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay, so she wrote the book, The Feminine Mystique. And in The Feminine Mystique, she pretty much launched the modern feminist move, movement by describing what she called the problem that has no name. And she described the problem that was affecting a lot of women. I think, you know, she was mostly talking about middle class and upper middle class women and, and mostly white women um, who were educated, they had been to college, uh, they were, you know, happy to some extent being mothers and taking care of the home and raising the kids, but they were feeling like it just wasn't everything they wanted. They wanted more, they wanted other options, they wanted other opportunities. And the, the, the disconnect there, the, the frustration that they were feeling there, feeling there was the problem that had no name and it often manifested itself in, in women uh, eating a lot of pills, you know, for depression and anxiety and unhappiness and going to psychiatrists who didn't have a clue what they were talking about because the stereotype at the time was, oh, you know, women's eternal nature is to stay home and, you know, nurture and raise the kids. And if they don't want to do that, there's something wrong with them. But even in that book where she was talking about the problem that had no name for women, she was pretty sympathetic to men. She cited in her book an article in Red Book magazine that had been published while she was writing her book. It was a, an article that was actually mentioned on the cover of Red Book magazine, the title of which was Why Young Husbands Feel Trapped. In a book about the problems women face, Betty Friedan acknowledged problems that men face. And she has since said, let's, let's not, I can't remember the exact words, I could probably dig them up for you, but she said, let's have men join us at the center of the second stage of the, of the gender revolution. Well, what happened to make sure that that didn't happen, you know, that men have been pretty much ruled out of any discussions, not invited to the table, no, no sense of going for the win-win, no, uh, no sense of um, a balanced give and take negotiation about how we can um, help each other out with the problems we face with our gender roles. A few years later, after Betty Friedan wrote her book, a group of women called the Red Stockings in New York City uh, issued the feminist, no, the Red Stockings Manifesto. And the Red Stockings Manifesto basically says, women are oppressed, our oppression is total, and we identify men as our oppressors. Well, and we've been off to the races since then. Their oppression is total. So of course they, there's no need to, to, to have a negotiation with men because men aren't stakeholders here, they are our enemies here. And we don't have anything to offer them because we are totally oppressed. Now, I think that probably, if you were to ask most men back in the day, how's your life right now? They probably would have said, oh, it's okay, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I'm making good money. Well, how are your kids? Well, yeah, I, mean, I don't really get to see them as much as I'd like. I mean, even back then, I think a lot of men would have, would have uh, ventured uh, to, to say that, to step out of the, uh, the, the stereotype of the successful, powerful man who's right. crushing they were, it at They were work. taking the train to work every morning. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. did, did you watch Mad Men? No. 
Oh, okay. Well, I got a great quote from, from Mad Men. The first episode, episode one, season one, where the main guy, Don Draper, um, an advertising executive, is talking to a woman, and he's just as cynical as he can be, not loving life at all. And the woman he's talking with, not his wife, because he was a philanderer, um, said, wow, I, I guess I never realized until, until right now that it can be hard being a man too. And his response was not, yeah, damn right. His response was, excuse me? There was just no awareness. You know, men were not talking about this stuff. Sure. sure. Um, so can I ask you about your divorce situation? Yes, you can. So what's the custody arrangement? Um, it's, uh, it's fairly split. It's not quite 50-50, but it's close. Okay, and how about uh, who gets to make decisions about where the kid goes to school, for instance? Well, we both live in the same uh, school district, so that's part of the that was part of the uh, agreement. Okay, um, so the kids will stay in this in the school district that we're in. Okay, well, it sounds like you're better off than a whole lot of men. Which state are you in? Ohio. Okay, don't. I think Ohio just passed a rebuttable presumption for joint. No, no, they're considering it. They're considering a rebuttable presumption for joint custody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've fortunately we've had a, a good, uh, friendly situation. I know it's it's not like that for a lot of people. So yeah, exactly. Uh, but I did notice how the, the the man was really, and I know we've made a lot of progress, but boy, the man in the legal system for the longest period of time was really looked down upon or forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that that was a major flaw, a major flaw. I've seen kids grow up without without fathers that really has an impact on them in their yes. adult lives. Yes. Um, and, and again, I, I think that this is a very uh, tricky topic that we're talking about here and, and the line of work that you have found yourself in because, uh, for example, like in the professional world, do you believe that it is still, quote unquote, a man's world when it comes to success or having opportunities or has that changed? Um, it then, I guess it would depend on what you mean by a man's world. Uh, but, you know, rather than quarrel about a definition of that phrase, I, I would say that um, it's a very mixed bag. And, and in some of the writings I've done, I've said, <clears throat> I've said, if, if this was a book for boys, um, but it applies to, you know, boys who grew up to be men. Um, let's say you're in a race from New York to Los Angeles and you get to start, you get a head start, you get to start in Cleveland. Okay? Well, you know, on first blush, wow, that's a man's race because, you know, men get to start in Cleveland. They get a head start. And the answer is yes. On the other hand, what if he doesn't want to go to Los Angeles? What if where he really wants to go is London or Paris or Istanbul? Is he an advantaged position? No. Imagine your father gave you a brand new baseball glove because he loved baseball and he wanted you to play baseball but you didn't want to play baseball. You wanted to play football or soccer, or you didn't want to do any sports at all. You were, you were a bookworm. Is that glove a gift to you or is it an obligation to you? And that's the way I think we need to be looking at what we think of the lot we have asked men to undertake. Now, there are a lot of men who love to kick ass and take names, who are very competitive from the get-go. And competition to them is much more valuable and important and, and fun than, than being creative, for instance. And so those men, yeah, um, they can find a woman who, who will take care of the house and home, and there are still plenty of those. Um, yeah, he's got an advantage. But what about the guys who don't really want to kick ass and take names and be CEOs and spend 80 hours a week at the office and, yeah, 20, but, hours, but, and 20 hours a week in the train? <clears throat> let me ask you, Jack, but based on that analogy and that, and that uh, argument, 
you are still suggesting or you're implying that if the men start in Cleveland, they're closer to Los Angeles, you're implying that every man does have a head start and has an advantage. They might not want to act on that advantage, but you're implying that due to their, correct me if I'm wrong, that due to their sex, they have a head start. Believe me, I am very happy, very happy to have you acknowledge that not every man, even in that situation, has a head start. But I'm, I'm being generous to the people who, who want to say, wow, what a, what a head start he has. <clears throat> yes, I agree with you. Not every man wants to have a head start. Not every man wants to be in that race. But, but you're saying, are you saying that every man starts in Cleveland? Are you suggesting every man starts ahead in the business world or you're just no, saying what I'm what majority. I'm suggesting is what I'm suggesting is that the people who want to talk only about the disadvantages women face insist that every man starts in Cleveland. Oh, I, see I don't think I don't think every man starts in Cleveland. Right. right. <clears throat> they want to say they, their argument is that every man has a head start. And that's not true in so many instances. I, I would say that that is a very strong principle of of modern feminism that's the feminist now of course i'm sure we could find somebody who wrote something uh, once in a while betty friedan for instance who said you know it's not exactly a bed of roses being a man either but for the most part especially the red stockings manifesto point of view is women got nothing and men got it all you know right that's, which is that's, a completely unfair statement to make yes um, but before we wrap it up, who are some celebrities that are real vocal, that are really feminist type celebrities that you hear that are really using their platform to, are there any that come to mind that really drive you crazy? I'm going to end on a positive note, Nate, if you don't mind. And I want to, I want to, I want to accentuate the positive. Andrew Yang was a Democratic candidate for president. And he has recently made some pretty courageous statements about the fact that we need to pay attention to what's going on with men and boys. And um, he does the opposite of drive me crazy. He gives me hope. Um, and I hope he runs for president again, because I think that there are probably a lot of people, uh, men and women alike, who just have had enough, enough, enough of feminism, feminism, feminism all the time, 24-7, 365. And, and especially, you know, you know who some of the best champions for, for boys are? Who's that? The mothers of boys, mm. mobs, MOBs. And, you know, if if there are women who are, you know, up to their eyeballs in enough of this talk about how hard it is for women and girls, um, you know, I think there's probably with some, you know, favorable media or at least fair media, um, a good chance that Andrew Yang could make a really strong case that one of the things that our nation needs to do more of is pay attention to what's going on with our men and our boys. And, you know, in what way, we know we're a polarized country and it's not good for us, but I would ask in what way are we more polarized than across gender lines? I can't think of one. Well, since you didn't want to answer that one, and I, I think that's uh, good insight, but since you didn't want to answer that one, let's, let me ask you this one, because this was curious. You, ha you have this thing here, Tell us about your date with Oprah Winfrey. Let, let's finish with that. <laughs> okay. And he's laughing while he, he's laughing while he yeah. gets coffee. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, it was a quasi date, and it was sort of a date. It was a date, I guess. Uh, um, can I take like five minutes for this? Sure. Okay, because I'll give you the backstory. A friend of mine is is Fred Hayward, a brilliant young man. Well, he's not young anymore. He's a brilliant man started an organization in, I guess, the 70s called Men's Rights, Inc. Now, I don't consider myself a men's rights activist. I consider myself a men's issues activist, but Fred's great, Men's Rights, Inc. And he, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I think it was the right time frame, he um, went on a media tour, did a lot of radio and a lot of television. 
and I'm talking about male gender issues. And he came to Baltimore, one of the Group W stations. Uh, he had previously been in Pittsburgh and I think Philadelphia. Um, and there was a host of a show called People Are Talking. Uh, a very dynamic young woman who had taken Baltimore by storm was immensely popular in Baltimore. Her name was Oprah Winfrey. She had come from Nashville. She came to Baltimore. She started um, being a news person and hosting People Are Talking. Well, when Fred was a guest on the show, she started the show with this introduction, something like, um, everybody knows that men don't really have any issues, but uh, we have a guy here who wants to talk about it anyhow. Please welcome Fred Hayward. And the way Fred explains it is that, you know, he just wasn't in the mood for it that day. <laughs> and he said to Oprah, look, Oprah, proportional to the population, there are 24 times as I think it was 24. This is back in the back in the 70s or 80s. I think he said proportional to the population there are 24 no there are, there are let's see 18 times forgive me for the numbers not being right. They're historical and I don't know what they are. Um he said proportional no he said there are 18 times as many blacks black blacks in jail as whites, proportional to the population. Okay. What does that tell you? And she said, well, that tells me that blacks are under more social and economic pressure than whites are. And Fred said, good. Proportional to the population, there are 24 times as many men in jail as women. What does that tell you? Mm. Well, what it told Oprah was to cross her arms and turn away from him they cut to a commercial. The producer came up to Fred and said, I am sorry, this is not going the way we planned. What did they plan? Well, nobody told him, but probably the plan was to make Fred look like an idiot, a troglodyte. Uh, you know, anybody who's not a feminist must be a caveman. Um, they took him off the set they cut they, after the commercial they came back and filled the rest of Fred's time with a chef doing chicken recipes you know I guess he was going to be the next segment and they just extend, extended his segment into Fred's time okay so that's how that episode ended several years later I am doing public relations for a weight loss program in Baltimore and the weight loss program um, held its meetings in the same community where Oprah lived. And everybody knows, and Oprah's made no secret about it, you know, that she's always had to watch her weight. And it's, you know, it's been a struggle. And she heard about this weight loss program very near where she lived that was apparently doing some really good things. I, I think it was mostly uh, sort of a cult of personality, a very dynamic young, not young woman, a very dynamic woman ran this weight loss program. And I, I was not convinced that the program really had any lasting benefit. Anyhow, um, the woman who ran the weight loss program had heard that Oprah was thinking uh, of maybe investing in this program and so that it could be uh, replicated around the country. And she asked me to talk to Oprah about this. And so I agreed to, you know, I get to meet Oprah Winfrey, um, big star in Baltimore. Oprah and I met at a place called Perry's Ordinary, very much a part of that community in which Oprah lived and the woman ran her weight loss program. And Oprah introduced me to Long Island iced teas. <laughs> you ever had one? Oh yeah. Yeah. A thousand um, calories worth of, of uh, fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and we had some Long Island iced teas. And mm -hmm. I, I have to tell you, Oprah was delightful. She was fun, nice. She spoke about what she was really passionate about, which was kids. She really cared about kids. But this was right before she was getting ready to leave Baltimore 
and go to Chicago, where she was going to start her, her Chicago star show and, and go on to national and international, international frame, fame. So during this conversation, she said, you know, I'm going to Chicago. And then she said, and she was not bragging. She was just tickled, very tickled. She said, and do you know how much they're going to pay me? And I said, how much? And she said, $800,000. I'm like, wow, that's so great. She was just really fun and delightful. Now, I had been, delight I had been invited as a result of my radio show to come and give a talk to the Mensa organization in Baltimore. You know what the Mensa group is? What does it People, stand for? I've heard that. I, I don't know that it stands for anything. It's, it's refers to mental capacity. Okay. The people who have high IQs as measured by various instruments, uh, they get to join the Mensa Society. So they invited me to come and give a talk uh, about the topic of my radio show. They were interested in hearing more about this men's issue stuff. What are you talking about? So I said to Oprah, what are you doing Friday night? She said, nothing. I said, okay, I'm going to pick you up at 730. Because I knew from having met Fred about Oprah's history with Fred and her attitude towards men's issues. Mm. So Friday night comes, I go to her door, knock on the door. She opens the door. She says, well, I didn't think you were coming. And I say, well, here I am. Come on, let's go. Where are we going? I'll show you. Just come on with me. We're, you know, we're, going, we're going downtown. So I walk into the Mensa meeting. It was held in the Maryland Science Center um, in Baltimore's famed Inner Harbor. I walk in with Oprah Winfrey, and you, you know the people were all about, oh my God, that's Oprah Winfrey, it's Oprah Winfrey. So Oprah sits in the back, um, and I do my talk. And at the end of my talk, I said, so what'd you think? And she said, what I love hearing. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, my, you know, the star I, I want on my report card. She said, I never thought of it that way. And, you know, I took her home. That was pretty much it. She goes on to Chicago and, you know, and fame. And I'm sure she wouldn't know me if she tripped over me. But, you know, that's my date with Oprah Winfrey. Oh, that's an everlasting thing. And it, it, yeah. it's the exact same thing, Jack, that you experience at those tables at uh, softball Tuesdays. It's Pretty much. Really something, yeah. Uh, where can people find you online? Jackcamera.com. Oh, I wanted to mention that you, I think, yes, it, on the um, Zoom uh, splash screen, you had my name spelled with one M. It's with two M's. Jack Kammer, K-A-M-M-E-R. Sounds like Jack Hammer. Right. which is why my friends call me pneumatic street repair device. That's the first time you've ever used that joke, I bet. I, I'm Baba do Baba ding. Let me give you a drum roll. Um, Jackhammer.com is the center for pretty much everything I'm doing. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course. You could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend. Tell a family member. Let them know about the podcast. And we will see you next time.